No taxation without representation. 200 years of exploitation in the capital of this nation. No representation in the capital of this nation. 200 years of exploitation. Give the people their right to vote. Someone asked me, was it true? The voting rights of the district were long overdue. That was Sweet Honey in the Rock with Give the People Their Right to Vote. Hello and welcome to Shadow Politics, an hour-long grassroots talk show, which will attempt to shine a light on the issues that you care about. I'm your host, United States Senator Michael D. Brown, coming to you live from the District of Columbia, America's last colony. I hope our show will start a dialogue with America about the issues that are important to you and affect the lives of all of us. So if you have a question, you can call in at 888-627-6008. Before we get started, let me wish a happy birthday to Doug and Don, uh, the twins of BBS Radio, which have kept this show on the air for more than nine years, and tell you that we have a very, in your honor, guys, we have a very special guest tonight who is also a twin and an amazing person, uh, Captain Scott Kelly. Uh, Captain Kelly is a former military fighter pilot, a test pilot, an engineer, a retired NASA astronaut, and of course, a US Navy captain. He is a veteran of several space flights, He commanded the International Space Station on three expeditions and was a member of a year-long mission on the ISS. In October 2015, Captain Kelly set the record for total accumulated number of days in space. Uh, The single longest space mission by an American astronaut. We are honored to have him on the show. Captain Kelly, welcome. Uh, Thank you, Michael. Appreciate you having me. Yeah, of course. And and let me start where I come from a military family, so let me start where you should always start with a veteran and thank you for your service. And in your particular case, thank you not only for your service to America, but your service to the world in the International Space Station where you were on a, a year-long mission. So let me ask you, let's start there. Why? Why a year-long mission? At ISS, what did we? What, what what was the purpose of that, and what did you learn from that? Well, we uh, generally do flights around six months. That's been the experience mm-hmm. aboard the International Space Station. But you know, someday we want to go to Mars. Mars is really far away. It'll take you uh, like two hundred days to get there. You'll have to live on the surface for over a year. Two hundred days to get back, and when we're in space for a long time bad things happen to our physiology. You know, we uh, evolved with gravity. So in the absence of it, you have uh, you have issues. And we need to learn and understand how to mitigate these problems if we're going to, you know, safely send astronauts to Mars or, you know, elsewhere someday, perhaps. And are you weightless when you're in the International Space Station? Or is there some kind of artificial gravity there that... that that uh, uh, simulates what you have on Earth. No, we're uh, weightless. Mm. So that's no artificial gravity yet. Someday, okay. maybe. 
Well, let me, let me ask you. It would be nice if you had a switch. You could turn it on and off. Yeah, I bet. I just can't imagine. You know, let me tell you, uh, Captain Kelly, the first time I went to the Air and Space Museum, I was probably a teenager, and I saw that capsule that John Glenn went up in, and I thought to myself, no way, no way did a person, was a person brave enough to climb into that damn thing and be shot off into outer space. The, the bravery, the courage that you folks show, the men and women that have been up there, I think is just amazing. Uh, let me ask you, we've been getting a lot of telemetry from space, it seems to me, over the last several years, uh, from the Hubble telescope and the Mars rover and what you've done on the ISS and others have done on the ISS. What do we know about the universe? What have we learned about the universe that we didn't know a decade ago? I mean, is there anything really wow. important that we've learned? That's a, it's a that's big a question. Pretty broad, that's a pretty broad question. You know, this year alone, when we launched the James Webb Telescope, which is giving us insight on the creation of the, you know, the universe and, uh-huh. you know, what our origins are, where we came from. Uh, pictures deeper into space uh, than we've ever seen before. And, uh, you know, that mission was really a, a remarkable, um, you know, series of events, all these things that happened, had to happen serially to get that uh, telescope launched and checked out and deployed and now doing some incredible science. You know, also this year we launched the uh, SLS and Artemis, um, which is, the spacecraft of the Orion capsule was launched on that uh, space launch system, uh, sent it around the moon, came back successfully. Haven't seen the data yet, but still, uh, you know, looks uh, pretty promising. I think so far that it will be able to send uh, astronauts around the moon next time it flies in a few years. So that's pretty exciting. Of course, you know, we're still operating the space station um, you know, successfully with our international partners having some issues right now with one of the Russian Soyuz's uh, has a leak of a coolant system, but the um, crew is currently safe, which is good. So, uh, yeah, just this year, we've uh, we've learned a lot, done a lot uh, in space. And, uh, I, you know, I'm excited for the future as far as what we've learned the last 10 years. I don't know. I'd have to, I'd have to start Googling stuff to uh, give you a list of, all the thing that's, things that have happened in no, space the last sorry, 10 years. I didn't mean to put you on the spot with that question. I just <laughs> It just seems to me that, you know, we're all of a sudden getting a lot of information back, and that's great. And as far as the leak from the ISS goes, I know it canceled the spacewalk for two Russian cosmonauts. And um, in November of 2023, the ISS will be 25 years old. Does it need to be replaced? Well, we're not going to replace it with um, anything similar. It's uh, a very ambitious program, very expensive, a lot of countries involved. We've done some amazing research on board, but I think it's, uh, you know, once it is retired, not not next year, but uh, sometime in probably the next seven years, maybe closer to 2030, we're going to hopefully by then have a, a smaller space station but in orbit around the moon so we can do, you know, sorties down to the lunar surface, uh, learn what we need to learn there. So maybe, I don't know, sometime next decade, go to Mars. 
without giving away any military secrets, uh, Captain Kelly, how important is is space to us militarily? I know, you know, we know we've started this thing called the Space Force. I actually have a friend that, that's working on it. Uh, how important is it for us to have a military presence in outer space, do you think? Well, it's incredibly important. I mean, it's the next uh, domain of, of war fighting, unfortunately. I mean, yeah. I would have preferred that the space station or or space, you know, stayed um, kind of a peace, peaceful, neutral ground. But with uh, other countries, uh, you know, recently doing some anti-satellite tests and, you know, all the... <clears throat> all the intelligence we get from our space-based assets, it seems like the, uh, you know, that domain is now, um, you know, part of countries, uh, including our own, um, you know, war fighting strategy. So it's important. Um, it's important for our national security, but I think hopefully we'll, we'll do it with a, you know, keeping in mind that, you know, it's preferred that we, you know, keep space as clean as possible. Don't pollute it like we've done Earth and uh, keep it as peaceful as we can. Well, you know, that's one of the reasons that I'm a big supporter of the space program, uh, Captain, is that I believe that someday we will pollute it. We will have polluted our home planet so badly that we'll have to get out of here and we'll have to have another place to go, unfortunately. But, uh no. I think we need to take care of this planet without the idea that we have someplace else to go, because it will always be easier for us to live on Earth, regardless of what we do to it. And as an example, you know, sending all of us to Mars someday or a few of us or, you know, going into some other, you know, solar system that's nearby. I think Earth is basically our home until, you know, it can't support us any longer because the sun won't uh, won't allow it. But at least in the next billion years, I think this is it. So we should keep that in mind. Well, you know, I'm a, I'm a fan of Star Trek. I grew up with Star Trek. So I believe they're, you know, I've got this vision of many planets out there like earth with beautiful, uh, space women and, and all sorts of other things. Uh, yeah, I'm sure that earth will always be more hospitable than Mars. Uh, let me ask you, I've seen some of the pictures you've taken. They're just amazing. If, if to our listeners, if you haven't, um, uh, Captain Kelly's written a couple of best-selling books, and one of them is called Infinite Wonder. It has all these amazing pictures from outer space. Let me ask you a personal question. Were you ever trained as a photographer, or is this a hobby, or you just got lucky, or what is it? Because you have some amazing images. You know, NASA's trains us as photographers for a number of reasons. Um, you take pictures for, for various purposes, similar to document science experiments. Um, you know, others, you might want to, um, you know, send an image to the ground of, uh, you know, a piece of hardware, something that might be broken, needs a replacement. And, um, certainly Earth observation pictures are important for tracking changes in our, um, our environment, our atmosphere. So there's a lot of reasons why we well, take pictures, and NASA trains us. Um, but a lot of the photos I have in that book are is kind of close-up, 
photographs that I kind of perfected doing this and, and, you know, enhancing the color on them for artistic purposes. And that was kind of, I think, unique at the time um, when I was flying to do that. So I kind of developed this technique, you know, based on training that I had at NASA. But the simple answer to your question is yes, NASA does train us as photographers. Well, they did a good job with you because some of those pictures are just amazing, and I encourage everybody to take a look at them. They're they're really something. Uh, one of your books, Endurance, the subtitle of that book is My Year in Space, A Lifetime of Discovery. So what did you discover in the year in space? Did you discover anything about yourself that you didn't already know other than you can endure? Obviously. Yeah, you know, one thing I learned is that, you know, living in space for a long time is really hard and challenging. And uh, but that's that was the best part about it, that it was was a hard thing to do. And, uh, you know, having having a mission and, and focus and pacing myself, uh, you know, what, what I learned is that I can, you know, deal with some pretty challenging um, situations, especially when you have a big team supporting you. Uh, the other thing I learned is that especially my you know, 20 years working at NASA as a, as a, as a species, as a country, as an international partnership, you know, we're able to do some extraordinary things. I mean, building that space station, you know, a million pounds while flying around the earth at 17,500 miles an hour, uh, in a vacuum in space is just an extraordinary achievement technologically. And if we can do that, you know, we can do anything we put our minds to. So, I think one of the biggest things I learned is that, you know, there is nothing beyond their potential if we work together uh, cooperatively, uh, peacefully, you know, with a with a with a good team, a strategy, and uh, you know, I I would like to think that we would use those same uh, same lessons for all the other challenges we have on Earth. Well, I I I I'm with you. I hope that it brings us closer together. And it seems like a, a, a worthwhile endeavor uh, to try to make that happen. And I agree with you. It's, a, it's amazing that uh, the cooperation that's been uh, shown to, to build the ISS and how successful it's been. Uh, but given that the Russians are part of that uh, crew uh, and we're trying to cooperate, let's move on. You've been to Ukraine lately. And, you know, on the show, Captain, we've had the former press secretary to the president of Ukraine. We've had people that have raised money for Ukraine. We've had Ukrainians on the show. We're very interested because I think America is very interested in what's going on there. And I see that you were just there uh, just a few weeks ago and, and, and you visited Children's Hospital. You've supported the ambulance service, which I'm sure is very, very important, and raised over $500,000 in support. What's, what's your assessment of the people right now in, in Ukraine? Are they still hopeful? They seem like they really, they really want to fight and they really, you know, they're really being successful. Is that the case or is that the press? No, I think it's absolutely the case. I mean, they're fighting for their freedom. They're fighting for their democracy. They're fighting for their future. They're actually also fighting for our freedom and democracy, you know, in that they're defending 
uh, you know, against the Russian military, which was designed to, you know, oppose NATO. So I think that they're, uh, you know, they're, 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 they're fighting for our freedom as well, but they have a, uh, a positive and, uh, enthusiastic spirit. I think the more the Russians attack, uh, Ukrainian civilian infrastructure, the more, uh, just determination and resolve that they will get out of them. And hopefully the more support, you know, Western nations and freedom loving nations will provide. But I think all Americans and Europeans from free countries should be uh, concerned about this because it is not only a threat on the freedom of Ukraine, but it's a threat on the freedom of all of us. Yeah, it absolutely is. And, and I think Americans and 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 free, freedom loving people around the world do feel, uh, uh, you know, to some extent, the pain of the Ukrainians, uh, and of course for the United States, it's a very delicate balance, you know, that that given militarily where we stand juxtaposed to the Russians, right? We can't just rush in there. We can't just send in missiles or planes or military personnel. We have to be very careful about the way and strategic about the way we support them. So what do you think that they need? Is it, Do you have any sense of what they need that they're not getting in Ukraine right now? Well, right now from a, you know, civilian, uh, like humanitarian aid, they need generators and fuel to run them because Russia realizes that they can't win on the traditional battlefield. So they're, they're striking, uh, civilian infrastructure, particularly the electric and and heating, uh, which is generally like centralized, uh, hot water heating, um, to try to, you know, freeze the population into submission. So, I think that's their biggest need, but certainly modern weapons are important. Uh, you know, weapons that can shoot down the, you know, drones and cruise missiles that Russia's using currently to attack their infrastructure. Um, so I think any, you know, country, uh, you know, including the United States, that's looking to contribute uh weapons to this cause need to, I think, do it with, you know, advanced uh, weapons that, you know, have the ability to shoot down these these drones and and cruise missiles. Well, it it seems to me that, you know, we're trying to help as much as we can. And, And today in the Washington Post, on the front page, there was an article about how this elite Russian I'm sorry, I can't remember the name of the the outfit, but this uh, elite Russian um, uh, force, um, you know, uh, they made them sound like they were equivalent to like our our Green Berets or or, or our Navy SEALs, uh, have uh, suffered serious defeats uh, recently at the hands of the Ukraines. I know you're not a diplomat, uh, Captain Kelly, but uh do you think that that this sort of humiliation for the russians do you think that it'll have a bad effect that putin will redouble his efforts because of the embarrassment of it all you know i i don't know you know i'm not an expert on on putin he does seem to double down when he's you know kind of put into a a corner and i think militarily yeah. he's currently there right um, yeah, 
but yeah, their their military does not did not perform as as many you know people expected. I didn't expect that they would do as well as I thought, but I didn't think they would do this uh, miserably. Um, you know, on the battlefield, being considered you know one of the largest, uh, most equipped armies in the world. But you know, one thing that Russia has that is uh, you know I think inconsistent with having a professional military, and that is their government, their form of government is basically a kleptocracy. Yes, you know, it is. People, people, you know, stealing and, and yeah. bribing their way into wealth and power does not bode well for a functioning military. You know, when you got the guy that uh, is responsible, responsible for, as an example, buying the truck tires, you know, he'll buy the cheapest tires he can so he can pocket the rest of the money. And I think that's... Right. Uh, Kind of across the board, what we've seen is despite, you know, how much money they've spent on their military, they don't have a military that is, uh, you know, reflected in that, in the amount that they've invested in it because of that. But also, you know, what I've noticed my whole time going to Russia, um, you know, over 20 years, I've spent a lot of time there. And that is something that's also endemic in their, in their system is not taking uh, personal responsibility, not owning up to mistakes. And I could just see how, you know, Russian generals, um, you know, when stuff doesn't go as they would like, them not being, you know, honest with themselves and not being honest, you know, reporting the challenges up the chain of command. So I think, you know, those two things are really why the Russian military is not really all that great and are getting their, you know, their butts handed to them by a much smaller, um, but more capable adversary. Yeah. Well, you know, it, it really does seem like a David and Goliath story. Does it not? I mean, I think, I think everybody in the world has been surprised by this about the resolve of these people. And, you know, but of course, if we look at them historically and you look at the second world war, that was really the, the hallmark of Russia, right? That they were, that they, that they, they withstood this great, uh, you know, this great onslaught by the Nazis and with the help of the Russian winner, but Ukrainians are Russians basically. And, 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 and maybe, uh, Putin didn't, didn't count on their resolve being as strong as, as, as it is. Uh, well, I think, I think the, I think the Ukrainians would take exception, greatly take exception to you saying that they're Russians. That they're Russians. They are Ukrainians. Right. Yeah. They are Ukrainians. They are fighting for their freedom and people that are fighting for their freedom will fight much harder than a bunch of slaves, not knowing why they're even there, not being equipped, not being led, not being, um, you know, having any idea what they're doing. So, uh, yeah, you got to hand it to the Ukrainians. So they've, they've kind of risen up, like you say, in this kind of David versus Goliath kind of way. Well, I apologize to you, to Ukrainians and 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 I I, I no problem. I just I, I just got you out of trouble. Yeah, thank God. And <laughs> and let me ask you, uh, since I'm a boy that grew up in North New Jersey, and you're a boy that grew up in West Orange, New Jersey, uh, you know, I, I'm 
I'm a patriotic American uh, captain because I believe as a kid that grew up in Newark, New Jersey, who was orphaned at an early age as a teenager, dropped out of high school and later got a master's degree and got elected to public office, that the United States of America is the only place where something like that could happen. Now, let me ask you, as somebody from Orange, New Jersey, I'm 10 years older than you, but when I was a kid, Newark and Orange were both, and Patterson and all that area, were all very dangerous places to grow up. How did you get from Orange, New Jersey to NASA? Well, I was born in Orange. I grew up in West Orange. It was, uh, you know, there were parts of it that were a little bit, uh, you know, challenging. Um, certainly that area, certainly Newark and, and the other oranges were, yeah. you know, high crime places at that time. Um, you know, but I think in a lot of ways, my story is somewhat like yours in that although I did graduate from high school, I didn't do well in high school. And it was, uh, you know, I think the fact that our country is a country of second chances and redemption, I was able to find some inspiration for myself and uh, Tom Wolfe's book, The Right Stuff, and was able to write the ship, so to say, with regards to my academics and, uh, you know, went on become, to become a Navy fighter pilot, a test pilot later in astronaut. Yeah. So I think it shows, yeah, I think it shows that, uh, you know, this is a country that, uh, like they say, you know, the land of opportunity, but also the land of, uh, you know, second chances. And I think if, uh, you know, everyone, anyone who thinks they're done and are ready to give up, they should, uh, uh, they shouldn't do it because there's always a chance there that you can make your dreams come true. I absolutely agree with that. It couldn't it could couldn't be said better. And you know, as far as the other oranges go, yeah, my my sister was in the marching Barringer marching band and got hit in the head with a brick during the Barringer East Orange game by some East Orange fans. And you know when they're picking on the band that they're pretty tough people. But anyway wow. she okay. Yeah, Oh, yeah, she was fine. You know, I mean, this was 50 years ago, right, that she was in high school. Oh, wow. Yeah, but they, they threw rocks at the uh, rocks and bricks that uh, they had to, the police had to intervene and arrest a couple of people. But, you know, that's tough when you're, it's one thing when you're beating up the football players, but even worse when you're beating up the marching band, huh? Uh, anyway, let, let, let me ask you something. Uh, it's a well-known fact that identical twins very often walk down the same path. Um, obviously, you're an identical twin. Uh, there's no doubt that you're the better looking of the two, I think. But uh, uh, any idea that maybe you'd like to go into politics like your brother? You both were asked. For no, man. I'm uh, asked about it sometimes, you know, about running for office, either in Texas, where I lived for 20-something years, or actually, yeah, more than 25, or in Colorado, where I currently live. Um, you know, I, I would never say never, but I would say very, very unlikely. Um, you know, for one, I think we got really good representation here in Colorado. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't know why it would be necessary for me to get involved. Um but, 
you know, also I see how tough this job is through, you know, watching my brother uh, work yeah. hard at it. Yeah. And uh, I think you have to be 100% uh, committed. Um, and if there's any doubt in what your motivation is or, you know, why you're doing running for office in this country, it's probably not the right thing for you. And for me, currently, uh, I would say it's not the right time and maybe not ever. Fortunately, I can live vicariously through my brother and see, uh, you know, the enjoyment that he experiences by, you know, serving his constituents and the, I guess, the uh, rest of the United States at at large, Um, but also see the the challenges and the difficulty of being a, a public servant in this country today. So, I'm lucky I have that, and I can, uh, you know, just right now I'm happy just supporting him as best I can. Well, you know, that's something that I've learned about military people uh, over my lifetime. My my brother was an F-111 pilot, um, and, you know, I come from a military family. goes all the way back to the Revolutionary War, and one thing I've noticed about uh, military people is they continue to serve. They don't ever stop serving. They serve their community. They serve their families, uh, their commitment to service. So let me say, anybody out there that's listening that might have a job available and it's applied for by a veteran, give it to the veteran because they're committed. Uh, and like I say, my experience with veterans is that they they serve long be- beyond their service uh, to the country in the military. Um let me ask you that you, you, you said earlier that this most recent, these most recent uh, missions that are going into space are taking us into new frontiers at the edge of the universe. Uh, you know, there's two basic theories about life, I guess, that one theory is that there's an intelligence to the universe that, that, that holds it all together and there's a higher power. And the other is that we're just biological or chemical or, or whatever, and that we've just evolved. Uh, have you seen anything through your work that leads you to believe more in one than the other theory? Do you believe there's an intelligent uh, design to the universe? I think the universe is so complicated that obviously no one knows anything. And, uh, you know, both of those things are equally plausible, I think. You know, mm-hmm. the complexity of the universe and how evolution occurred, uh, I just don't know. I'm a science-minded person. I look at facts and data. Um, and I would say to me, for me, the jury is out. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know, I've got to say I'm just the opposite. I'm not a science-minded person. I realized that when I took my first lab practical and everything in every mo- uh, microscope looked like an amoeba to me. So I, I knew I wasn't going to – science was not my calling. Um, you're the second astronaut that we've had on this show. The first one was General Bolden, the former – Uh, director of NASA and and a uh, space shuttle crew member. And we asked the general uh, what he felt about privatization of the space program. Uh, And and I think his answer was that it was an inevitability. Uh, How do you feel about it? How do you feel about this increased privatization of the 
of the space program. No, I think it's great. I mean, yeah. if you go back to, to um, you know, the early days of aviation, that was, you know, generally a, a military government uh, run program that got uh, safe enough and cheap enough for privatization to take over. And now we have the ability to travel anywhere in the world very conveniently, I guess, compared to how it used to be. Um, so I look at it in the same way. Now we have, you know, people with means, companies, public companies, private individuals putting their money into something that, uh, you know, at some point from a transportation perspective will have a benefit for, for many people on earth, but just, you know, the technology development is also important. It improves our lives. It, uh, you know, creates, uh, you know, good paying jobs, those people pay taxes, support their community. So I think it's a, it's a win for NASA. It's a win for the, uh, the companies that are getting involved, uh, assuming at some point that they, you know, will make money from this, I guess, because that's what companies want to do. Um, but also a win for the, the, uh, the American public and, and people around the world that we have this new fledgling commercialized, um, space program that is operates somewhat independently outside of governments. Uh, be careful there, Captain. You're starting to sound like a politician. Uh, mm. uh, let me uh, uh, also ask you: um, What do you think our next big step is? Is Mars the next big step, or is the Moon the next big step for us? Well, right now, our plan is to go back to the moon, put people on the moon, learn from that, have a base there. Uh, and then, you know, 10, 15 years from now, go to Mars. And I think, you know, in a perfect world, that's great. Um, seems like the moon was put there for us to learn how to go to Mars. It's, uh, you know, three days away versus over 200. It has uh, no atmosphere. It's compared to a little bit of atmosphere that Mars has. It's uh, kind of a challenging uh, place to operate, but very close. Um, and when we go to Mars, we have to be completely autonomous. Uh, so what better place to learn to do that uh, than right in your backyard? Um, but yeah, I think the big thing from a spaceflight perspective for um, the foreseeable future will be putting humans on Mars. And um, what are the challenges there? Are the extreme temperatures, uh, no atmosphere? Is that those, those are the big challenges? We we would have to provide everything. Is that correct? To to sustain A lot of challenges. Life? I mean, between the distance, between the radiation when you're going there, the. Um, lack of a breathable atmosphere, the lack of life. I mean, you have to bring all your own food. You have to, you know, either bring or create oxygen. You have to scrub the atmosphere with carbon dioxide. You know, these life support systems are going to have to work. Um, the distances involved are great. So you, your supply chain has to be um, pretty robust to keep people alive. So, yeah, there's a lot of... Uh, a lot of challenges going to Mars. Absolutely. Probably the biggest one. This is something I'll, I'll quote my brother. 
I'll throw him a bone every once in a while. He says, all right. He goes, he goes, uh, you know, going to Mars is not about rocket science. It's about political science, meaning you need the support and money to get there. And just so happens he's now a politician. So yeah, well, there you go. Right. We're, we're, and I think you could safely say we're both, uh, probably, uh, uh, fans of Aristotle who said anything that involves two people is politics. Um, Mm. uh, you want to go to Mars? Would you be one of the, yeah, I would go, I would go as as long as I could come back. Not interested in the one way trip. Yeah. Uh, Well, that's, uh, that's a very honest answer. And, uh, it seems to me that I've read somewhere, and I can't remember where, that they found water or the existence uh, of, of, of water at some point on, on Mars. But uh, still, we still haven't found life anywhere in the universe, have we? Even bacteria or no life yet. Correct. As far as I, yeah, we have not found any life off of this planet. We found some of the building blocks for life. Mm-hmm. Uh, some of the, you know, the uh, elements um, that you need for life, but no uh, signs of life so far. But we haven't really looked that much either. Well, um what would you see? What 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 do you hope is the next great discovery? If it's not life, what what would you hope that that is the next big the next big thing we find? Well, I'd like to think that you know we could discover a cure for cancer. That'd be great. Oh yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. You're right. You're you're right. That's absolutely the truth. And is there anything? You know, I remember reading how many inventions and how many products have come as a result of the space program, you know, things like microwaves and other things. Uh, you think there there's any potential for finding cure for disease in, in outer space, finding, you know, you've done a lot of experiments and you're a scientist. Is there some things we can learn from doing experiments in weightlessness that might help us here on earth in, in battling diseases? So, you know, the weightless environment of the space station gives us a, a, another variable that you cannot control on earth, uh, gravity. And that affects, uh, you know, certain, chemical processes, uh, um, behavior, uh, you know, biological behavior, behavior, physics, chemistry, you know, and they, that's the type of research we're doing. We do do some drug-based research on the space station and things to do with muscle wasting and bone wasting, stuff that happens to us in space very rapidly that also occurs on Earth. And, you know, drugs have been developed from that research as far as like curing cancer, not yet. I mean, we're mm-hmm. starting to do some stem cell type research and maybe having the ability to, to grow organs or other body tissues for potential further uh, future transplant is uh, a pretty exciting, um, uh, uh, you know, uh, topic of research that's currently just being started on board the space station. So, you know, I'm hopeful that, um, that, 
laboratory and, you know, future scientific laboratories in space will be able to do, you know, cutting edge research on whether it's curing diseases or growing, you know, future organs for transplants, something like that would be very exciting. Uh, how do you communicate in the, in the space station? I mean, if you're up there with a, a Russian and an Italian, do you need to, do you need to be uh, trilingual or is there, or does everybody speak English or how, how do you communicate with some, it seems like you're, you're setting up a tower of Babel kind of uh, atmosphere up there with people from several different countries. Did, is there a common language? Well, the official language of the space station program is English. Is English. And, uh, you know, what you'll find is most Europeans speak English pretty well. We're actually yeah. really lucky in this country that the, uh, you know, the general common language is English, and it just so happens to be our, our native language as American native English speakers, I guess. Um, so we're lucky in that regard. So, you know, most of the international cosmonauts speak English pretty well. The Russians, um, their English is generally better than our Russian because, um, you know, a lot of them took it in high school. They're exposed to it culturally in movies and TV shows. They are uh, exposed to English when they travel. They have a reason to learn English outside of the, the space program, and that is, you know, it allows you to move around, you know, fairly freely throughout the world. So, um, yeah, but sometimes, like on the Russian Soyuz, you speak Russian, very technical Russian, and sometimes you speak Russian on the space station, but mostly it's English. And how, how does command work? I mean, you have uh, you you have the rank, you have a military rank, uh, but how do you deal with people from other countries? Is there a hierarchy? on the space station that's assigned. So you're the commander and there's an assistant commander and then there's a, you know, whatever rank would come under that. Is that how it's handled? There is a uh, commander of the space station on board and that is designated through a multilateral crew operations panel that are, you know, uh, managers from all the different countries involved. So, you know, sometimes it's an American, sometimes it's a uh, Russian mostly, but other times there are, you know, European astronauts, Canadian, Japanese that are the commander of the space station. There's no deputy commander or like <coughs> uh, formally, but generally speaking, it would be, you know, the next most senior person on either the U S or when I say U.S., I mean all the other international partners, U.S. operational segment side or, or Russian side. But, no, there is an official commander of the space station um, that has, you know, traditional commander responsibilities, mostly to do with safety and if there's an emergency on board, you know, having a a, uh, a very uh, cohesive uh, response to failures. But... Also, you know, some of the more non-traditional commander stuff like, you know, team uh, cohesion and morale, stuff like that would uh, be under the purview, I guess, of the commander of the ISS. And is there, is the ultimate control, does that come from the, from the ground? Does that come from 
uh, control on Earth? Are 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 they? Uh, do we set the param the mission parameters and uh, the protocols here on on Earth and transmit them to the ISS? Well, you know, the space station program runs the space station. Um, you know, they decide what the priorities are. It's controlled operationally through the control centers around the world, uh, Houston and the United States. It's a payload control center in Huntsville, Alabama. Um, and then the crew executes that plan on board. So it's... Uh, you know, a kind of a multi-tiered operation from, you know, big picture planning to more um, day-to-day operations that the control center might um, or is more involved with. And it's really kind of more of a partnership, I think, between the space station commander and the and the lead flight director at NASA, typically, if there's a, you know, when they're you know, for the U.S. side of the space station. Um, you know, some things the flight director has more control over, and some things the commander of the space station has more control over, especially in an emergency, uh, and especially in the absence of calm with the ground. And how about the crew? How, how, many, how many crew are on the uh, ISS? What's a typical crew size? Typically now there's seven people. There's four on the U.S. side of the space station and three Russians. Um, when I was there, mostly it was six. Uh, for about six weeks one time, I was there with just two Russian guys. Uh, you know, sometimes there are more people. You could have 11, 12. I mean, it just depends how many visiting or vehicles you have, how many crews are changing out. So... But normally now it's seven people. And I imagine that from time to time there are problems that arise having several people in such close quarters because the entire space station is only 200 feet long. Is that right? So you've got, you've got all those people living in, in, in a confined space. Does that cause any problems? And has any uh, crew member ever had to be removed because of problems? Uh, no one's ever had to be removed from the space station over issues. I, mm-hmm. I've been up, I've been in space with over 40 different people and, you know, most of the time we get along pretty well. Uh, I've never seen any serious issues. Um, the people that are selected by NASA and our other international partners are very well vetted, well trained. So even though it is kind of, you know, a tight, tight quarters, it's really not a place where you have many, um, you know, interpersonal issues between the crew members. Well, that's, that's great. I mean, it, it's hard for I me. I know the to answer. You, I know you probably want to hear about all the bickering and fights, but that doesn't really yeah. happen. <laughs> yeah. Like, like you drank, right? <laughs> you drank my coffee or, or, you know, or I get the top bunk, you know, whatever. You stole yeah, my thing. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, there's always you, you always want a little drama, especially in politics. Unfortunately, in politics uh, these days, there's been too much drama and uh, not enough substance. Well, we're starting to run out of time here, 
uh, Captain. So let me ask you, is there something you wanted to say uh, other than uh, uh, something that, I, that I've asked you? And please give us any kind of information, contact information, where people can get your books, because I think they're, they're, they're amazing. And people would, you know, if you have a website or something, feel free to give that to our audience. Well, you can find my, any books that I've written on Amazon. That's probably the easiest place because that's where everyone buys everything. But, uh, more importantly, you know, uh, this fundraiser I'm doing for Ukraine, um, raising money for ambulances because Russia, destroys 10 of those a week they're very important to saving lives and uh people can find that on donorbox.org forward slash scott kelly if they want to donate uh they have the means to donate any anything else you know even a dollar you know if people donate a dollar that's real money (laughs) we'll put that up on our website and and yeah i read somewhere in your bio that you had served as part of an ambulance crew at one time early in your career. Is that true? Yeah, I was a kid in, uh, in West Orange and actually Orange, New Jersey too. I was a, a volunteer and then later a paid EMT at New Jersey city medical center there also. Wow. So having had that experience, I was always the crew medical officer on any of my space flights. So it's something that is uh, of interest to me, but more importantly, it's something that's, you know, very uh, urgent to save the lives of Ukrainians, uh, uh, you know, particularly the innocent people that are being targeted, women, children, um, the civilian population. I saw some of these, you know, horrific injuries while visiting a children's hospital in in Kiev. And, uh, you know, that war is real and uh, they need as much help uh, as, as we can provide them. And are they being targeted, Captain? They're not collateral damage. They're they're actually targets. Oh, absolutely. This is not collateral damage. I mean, you could see, like in some of these towns, Bucha or Pin. I mean, these are tanks rolling down the street, uh, blasting apartment buildings, stores, uh, cultural centers, uh, people's vehicles. I mean, the Russian army went in there with the scorched earth, basically policy that you know everyone's a everyone's a, a target doesn't matter i mean they have recently found like torture uh, facilities for children yeah. i mean this Power. is not uh, a normal um war as we understand how people would follow the normal war type rules um, you know, Russia realized they couldn't win using those, so they resorted to uh, terror. Um, so, yeah, these people need as much help as, as they can get. And, you know, I think that they're defending our freedom uh, while they defend their own. Well, I agree with you 100%. Captain Kelly, uh, once again, thank you for your service. I know that you have children, and I hope that you have a Merry Christmas, Happy Holiday season that you get to spend with people that you love and who love you. And I ask you to do me two two favors. One, if you run into your brother over the holidays, please mention to him that we have a statehood <coughs> bill where, where he's the only one of the only Democrats that's not on it, and ask him to take a look at it. And more important than that, if you run into your sister-in-law, 
please give her a hug for me. She's an inspiration to every elected official in America. Uh, there wasn't a dry eye in the house when she came on stage uh, courageously and spoke to the Democratic National Convention. And uh, we really do admire not only you and your service, but their continued effort to control gun violence in America. So thanks again for being with us. Uh, happy holidays, and, and I hope you come back again sometime. Thanks for having me, Michael. Appreciate it. Yeah. My pleasure. All right. Thanks, uh, bye. Uh, I would be remiss if I didn't wish Don and Doug the of BBS Radio, who have kept um, this radio show on the air for more than nine years, a very happy birthday. Uh, two of my favorite twins. Uh, and I dedicate a song uh, to our guest uh, every week. And uh, there's many space songs. It was very, very hard to, to um, um, pick a, an appropriate song. So I picked one that's one of my favorites of all time. And it's one of my favorites because it's uh, very hopeful. Uh, I also said that I would sing happy birthday to uh, Don and Doug on the air, but but I'm afraid that would affect our ratings. So so I'm, I'm going to forego that and just say thank you, guys. I hope you have many happy returns of the day. And here's the fifth dimension with a song from the musical Hair. Uh, next week, folks. We're going to do a special Christmas show. Just play some Christmas music for you, and we'll see you in a couple of weeks. Thanks so much.